0: All right, you ready? Hello and welcome, everybody, to the Discover the Hidden Potential of Your Mind podcast. And if you don't quite recognize my voice, that's because I'm not Angelica. My name is Dave Anderson, and in this episode, once again, the tables are turned. I will be your host for today, and I'm interviewing the fabulous Angelica Baum on this podcast episode today. And we're going to be talking more about relationships. We're going to be talking about how to create fruitful relationships, positive relationships that are built on a solid foundation. And specifically, we'll be diving into uh, the hot topic of apologizing, knowing how to apologize, how to take ownership and responsibility, and how to effectively say your sorry to your partner. I know this is something that everybody can relate to. It's something that's important for everybody to equip themselves with the skills to be able to do this effectively. And I know that I, in having this conversation with Angelica today, I'm going to learn a lot about this topic and I'm excited for that. So Angelica, welcome to your own podcast.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Dave. Thank you for doing this again. This is exciting.
0: Of course. Well, we we can really just dive in. Obviously, this audience knows you knows your work, uh, knows how effective you are at this work. And really, especially in the last little while, you have started to work more and more with couples to help them take their relationship to the next level. And um, really that's the focus of this conversation. And so just to dive into this conversation today, you know, you've know, you been writing a lot of blog posts. Going back to 2012, um, one to four posts every single month. You've you've written so much phenomenal content on the power of the mind and beliefs and relationships. Um, And there's some really great resources on your website for couples to reference. And one of the topics that's caught my attention as of late is this um, the blog, it's titled, Why It Is a Bad Idea to Argue With Your Partner About Who Remembers Things Right. So I would love to hear you speak about that blog post specifically and sort of what are the so the key lessons that you're teaching through that blog post
1: yeah so when two people have an argument who remembers what correctly there's one thing i can guarantee you and that's that they're both wrong (laughs) and that has to do with how our mind works it has two reasons it's how our brain records um an experience and then the second reason is what happens when we recall that experience because our mind is really highly flawed and we forget that Uh, when we have an experience it's not recorded um, in a continuous action like you would imagine a video recorder recording something but it records the memory in bursts or snippets and it's always influenced by our state of mind, our mental state, our emotional state, the perception we have at the moment when we record this. And um, our left brain, and this is a quote from Jill Bolte taylor who wrote this amazing book, My Stroke of Insight. She's a brain scientist who had a stroke and then she writes about her recovery and she writes a lot about the brain and how our brain works. She says our left brain is a great storyteller. That means the brain takes these moments and fills the gaps in with meaning. So the feelings and the meanings, we actually um, fill in because there's gaps as we're having an experience. All memory is filled with non-memory elements. That's step one. Now, when we recall a stored event, we add more embellishments. We fill the blanks in again. So how you feel when you remember uh, uh, an experience, that affects this again. And now you have created a new memory of that old memory based on what you're feeling in that moment. So now we're dealing with a remembrance of the memory. And every time we recall something, um, we change the experience because the memory is state dependent. How we feel when it happens already creates a certain memory. And then as we feel in the moment when we recall it, um, we create a new memory. So memories change. And let's face it, they weren't accurate to begin with.
0: the image that comes up for me when I'm hearing you describe this is almost like we're creating more distance from between ourselves and what really happened because it's not just what happened. It's how we were feeling at the time. And typically if there was another person or multiple people involved, it's not just how we were feeling at the time, but it's how they were feeling at the time because they have a different perception of the events So there's how those two people, if let's say it's you and your partner, how each of you were feeling at the time, influencing how you remember the event in the present. But then on top of that, it's also how each of you are feeling in the present, which is influencing how you're thinking about the past. So I think every time you add one of these layers, you're creating more distance between yourselves and what actually happened, in which case of it, the more distance that's created, it strikes me that the, le- the less productive it is to try to sort that all out and to try to figure out who was right and who was wrong and what happened in what order. The more distance between the actual event and the, the couple in the present moment, the less it makes sense to try to talk about it and figure it all out in a, from a logical perspective. So my natural question at that point for you is, so what do we do instead?
1: What's the alternative? <laughs> well, um, we, we need to be aware that um, th- it, there's no point in arguing about who remembers what correctly, because like you so perfectly explained again, each time it changes and we have already different memories to begin with. Uh, you have siblings too, and I have siblings. Has it happened to you that you talk to your siblings about experiences way from the past? And you two remember the the, the experience completely differently, right? And the same happens with couples. I often see how people even rewrite um, at the end of a relationship, for example, when they're separating, getting divorced, they're rewriting their relationship, now, based with these new feelings of disappointment, resentment, anger, suddenly the story about the marriage sounds totally different. It's not a love story anymore. But now it becomes the story of, well, we've never had much in common or he or she always did or said this or that. right? So and we even do this when we're not splitting up, when we're angry with our partners we tend to remember all the times that we were mad at them or that they annoyed us. When we're happy with them, we're feeling good about them, or we're missing them, we haven't seen them in a while, then we remember all the good times and loving moments. So our emotional state also drives our memory. And that also works the other way around. Our memory also changes our emotional state. So let's say we're thinking of something that's sad, that triggers sadness. And that can become a cycle, right? Now the the sadness triggered in turn might trigger more sad memories um, because state and memory are really tied together. We can't separate them. So instead of arguing what we can do and what we should do, is realize that it makes no sense to cling to this memory as if I know the truth. Neither one of the two people can be sure about the truth. They're either both right, if you want to look at it that way, or they're both wrong. So what is much more fruitful is to resolve the conflict in the moment, meaning to address the feelings my partner has. Because a conflict is a call to repair something, to perhaps apologize for something, or to take ownership for what I've said or done, instead of getting in this debate about right and wrong.
0: Mm. Got it. And that
1: brings us to apologizing.
0: (laughs) Sure. And so a conflict is a calling. I love what you said there. A conflict is a calling to resolve something. And it's nice to look at it that way as, as sort of, you almost take the emotion out of it for a moment and objectively just say all that a conflict is, because typically conflicts are very emotionally charged. And as you're suggesting as well, they're often anchored in false memories to some degree. So a conflict is simply a calling to resolve something. So now if you can get both parties to be on that same page and just say, how do we resolve, how do we resolve this problem in this moment right here. That strikes yes. me as a far more productive place to come from versus trying to sort out the past, who was right, who was wrong. As you say, they're either both right or they're both wrong, however you wanna look at it. When I think about apologizing, I think back to my childhood and you know, I've got three young children and I've seen this and I'm, I try to be conscious of it as a parent Oftentimes when a child does something quote unquote wrong, they do something that's hurtful to someone or they say something that they're not supposed to say, or they maybe they're, you know, they hit someone. What you often picture in that moment, whether that's in a school setting or a home environment, is the adult instructing the child to apologize. Say you're sorry. Go say you're sorry. Go apologize. And I understand where that comes from, and it's, 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 a, it's an instinct that I have sometimes, too. You just want to fix it all right away, and you just tell the kid, go say you're sorry. I also have an awareness that that's not necessarily the most productive thing. And what, what I'm conscious of is if, if most adults, if their experience as children was simply being instructed when to say sorry, which is not the same as actual apologizing, which is not the same, you know, and, and you can speak to this, I'm sure. I'm curious about your perspective. Because um, I sort of think, well, weren't we just all taught how to apologize as kids? I and mean, it's pretty simple. You just say you're sorry. What are your, wh- what's your insight or what are your thoughts on that as I sort of describe that reality?
1: Yeah, you would think in kindergarten, we all learn to apologize. But what really happened, like you already hinted that, is we're called together, now shake hands, say sorry. And we haven't necessarily learned how to express empathy, even to take that moment, put ourselves in the other person's shoes, what have they been feeling, um, and then taking ownership for what we've done. And here's another important piece, too, Brainstorm how to prevent this hurtful behavior in the future. So, <laughs> there's three parts, and I'll elaborate more on that. So, the trouble with apologizing is it's actually hard to apologize for most people because when we feel we've done something wrong, shame comes up. And shame is in the way of Expressing empathy is in the way of mending that rift with the other person, we get defensive, we want to explain, we maybe become even angry from that shame. And because these feelings of shame are so uncomfortable, we forget to give a heartfelt apology, to express empathy and um, really take ownership.
0: So how do we... How do we do that then? Because I, I can relate to that. No one wants to feel like they've done something wrong. You know, that's hardwired into us, possibly as humans. It's like you don't no one likes to feel or it can be painful and tough to acknowledge I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I so so what do we do? How do we sort of navigate that individually?
1: Yeah. So first of all, we have to feel that it's okay to make a mistake. And we have to trust that we the other person will forgive us if we uh, deliver a proper apology. And when we miss an apology or it's a, you know, a half-hearted apology that actually creates uh, more problems, worsens the situations, creates more tensions, so or now we have a person avoiding us. And really, really important to remember is when we do not Give a heartfelt apology in a timely manner, our offensive behavior, the hurtful thing we have done, gets stored in the long term memory of the other person. However, a well delivered or spontaneous apology as soon as possible means that the, the memory is also forgotten quickly. So it, it doesn't even enter our long term memory or the other person's long term memory and doesn't become part of the image or the idea of the impression they have of us. Got so it. super important to apologize right away.
0: <laughs> so could we, um, could we possibly break that down a little bit and sort of get into the specific components of an effective apology? How, how do we put that together?
1: Yes, so an effective apology has three steps. And different authors might name them differently. I actually like how Beverly Engel names them. Beverly Engel is the author of um, the emotional abusive relationship and other books about emotional abuse. And she talks about the three R's, regret, responsibility, and remedy. So that's nice to remember. So step one, regret, or we can also say expressing empathy that goes hand in hand with expressing regret, is step number one. It's an essential part of every apology. So we need to take enough time to acknowledge the impact our behavior, our words had on the other person. And you can't fake that well either, right? Your apology will sound empty or fake if you're not really feeling that regret, if you're not really feeling that empathy. So making eye contact with the other person using a sincere tone, uh, heartfelt words, and sometimes people, because we're so not skilled at apologizing, don't even know, what can I say? That's
0: heartfelt. Do you have any ways to support people in that, who, are, who yeah. feel that? It's like, well, I, I, let's just assume that someone feels that regret, they, and they, they, they have the emotional component, but now they're just looking for the right words. I can imagine that's a challenge for for a lot of people, including myself in a situation like that. that, that can be emotionally charged. So what are some words that people can use as sort of like a go-to, assuming they really do sincerely feel the regret and the empathy?
1: Yeah. So some phrases would be, I regret saying this or doing this you must have felt X, Y, Z. You must have felt hurt, criticized, unappreciated. So that piece of what must the other person be feeling is really important. You could say, um, I know this has been hard for you. You must have felt, and again, you must have felt alone, or I imagine you felt alone, uh, overwhelmed, sad. So the moment we do this we have a person goes "Ah, okay (laughs) this person hears me my feelings matter or you could say i am sorry you felt so the the empathy piece is huge um when you know what they're feeling you can say i understand how you feel and i'm truly sorry Or I feel terrible about what I did, about what I said. And I sincerely apologize. Sometimes we feel, oh, these words are too big. They really aren't. A good apology has heartfelt words in it. And then the second step, the second R is taking responsibility. So taking full responsibility, owning your part means not blaming anybody. Also not blaming myself. Taking responsibility is not about blame. It's also not about self-blame right? There's a difference between owning what I've done and acknowledging the impact I had and and blaming myself. Blaming myself gets me stuck in poor me. Like blaming others also gets us stuck in who's right and who's wrong, who's to blame. So um, not blaming others, not making excuses, and not even explaining. And that part is sometimes hard to remember.
0: And I think I can I can imagine that we in that moment really want to communicate where where we were coming from in the first place, what our intent was initially. So, Uh, is there a place for that? And and if so, what does that look like exactly?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is about wanting to let them know we had good intentions. But um, generally, the person's intent is good. But even a well meant intention can still uh, hurt, right? So um, this is totally sidetracking us when we're explaining, when we're making excuses. It's sidetracking us from taking ownership. Explanations just simply weaken our apology. So do your best not to explain at this point, and just first of all own the impact you had by doing something, by doing this or that. I see I impacted you that way. You felt this way. You experienced that. Um, So to really own something, I could say something like, um, I I was selfish. Just just call it what it is. I take full responsibility for what I did, for what I said. Or um, I overstepped and I shouldn't have interfered. Um, So there's so many ways of really just simply saying, this is what I did. Knowing the other person also has a part in different interactions, but that's not my business. My business is to take ownership of what I've done. And then the third step is um, showing our willingness to remedy the situation. Um, We've also heard as children this phrase, oh, I will never do it again. That's completely empty and meaningless unless we know what it takes not to do this again. So we need to come up with a realistic way uh, to avoid this hurtful behavior or a similar situation in the future. So rather saying in the future, I will X, Y, Z. Or if I'm totally clueless what I can do, I can brainstorm with the fear the person. I can brainstorm with my partner and I can say, can you help me figure out what I or what we could do to move forward and, and not repeat this situation?
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I hear what you're saying around just making the empty promise of, I promise not to do this again. Doesn't mean anything because there's no substance to support that. Um, And you can't make a a future-based promise without any strategy that's going to actually back it up. So I love the idea of brainstorming or collaborating, co-creating a plan to prevent... A future similar problem um when we think about apologizing in general almost zooming out a little bit and just thinking about the concept of apologizing are there any pitfalls or any things that people should be avoiding in general you know don't do this um anything that we should be avoiding in, in the process of apology
1: yes there's actually two words to stay away from but and if, because they negate an apology. You wanna focus on your behavior without making excuses. And if you say something like, I'm sorry if I offended you, that is actually a (laughs) non-apology because it questions the the other person's feelings. It it uh, diminishes what they're feeling. So no if. And no, but I mean, but anyways, when we finish a sentence with, but we negate the beginning of that sentence with that, but so yeah. Stay no away ifs. from if, no stay ifs, away no from buts. but. No ifs or
0: buts. <laughs> Yes, that is so true. Yeah. I'm sorry if I made you feel this way, but <laughs> that wasn't what I, that wasn't my intention. And I think You know, in that moment, I think it's the reason that we even use that language. I think it goes back to the shame that we're feeling. We we're we're resisting that shame. We don't want to feel that negative emotion. And so we're almost pressing against it and pushing it away. And that's the the, the ifs and the buts is just the the natural language that comes out as a symptom of the resistance of the negative feeling that I'm not sure if that's completely accurate psychologically, but that's what... um, comes up for me anyway. What about receiving a, an apology? So if you're on the receiving end an apology, is there anything that we should be mindful of when that's the situation and and someone else is apologizing to us?
1: Yes. So just as there's an art to apologizing with three R's, there's also an art to receiving an apology. And that means when I get an apology, I stay away from buts, I stay away from lectures. Just simply receiving the apology gracefully with openness, with a simple thank you. And if there are any further discussions to have, save them for another time, right? If there's challenges that you wanna discuss, not in that moment because then you end up in a lecture or something, you just wanna simply receive thank you, acknowledge that there was an apology.
0: And what about going back to something we discussed earlier in this conversation, which is around as kids, oftentimes, you're just, I think back to my childhood, sometimes you're just told to apologize. Think of a teacher in a school setting, go say you're sorry. And there's a whole lot of, there's a lot of reasons that they operate that way. Sometimes it's just a factor of time and efficiency, and they want to resolve the conflict as fast as possible because they've got 20 other children and they're managing emotions and challenges and behaviors. And they've got a curriculum that they've got to teach as well. And let's not forget that. So how would you, if you were speaking to an educator right now, a teacher of young children or a parent like myself, having three young kids, I now have a almost six year old and a three and a half year old. And, you know, they're at that stage where sometimes they're playing together joyfully and it's incredible to watch. And other times that's not exactly what's happening. And there's, (laughs) there's some conflict resolution as a parent that I have to engage in. So what advice do you have for my, someone like myself as a, uh, as a young parent or as a, as an educator with young
1: kids? Yeah. So as parents, as grandparents, as educators, We would like to raise kids that are ready to say sorry. And the key there is saying less is more. So if a child actually apologizes, that is very mature, that's responsible just receiving it with a thank you again. You could say something like, I'm so proud of you for doing this, acknowledging that this was hard, acknowledging that there were probably feelings to overcome, like some shame and giving them credit for being so such a big boy, such a big girl for doing this. Making statements about the child's character is, of course, detrimental. We want to focus on behavior, not you're a bad boy, but the specific thing you did wasn't okay. Um yeah, overall, shifting away from a shameful experience and giving the child an experience that pos- that's positive, that's an experience of personal growth, increases their self-esteem, because it is a gift to the other person when we apologize. It feels good to the person who receives the apology, but it's actually also a gift to ourselves. It also feels good to take responsibility for something and live from that place of integrity. And if we can have children experience that, we end up in the next generation with adults who actually know how to give a good apology.
0: Right, it it helps to cultivate that emotional maturity that develops over time. Yes. Right. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing all of this with us today. And I think it's fun sometimes to turn the tables and have you be the guest on your own podcast. I know I found this enlightening and informative, and I know that uh, anyone tuning in to this conversation between the two of us today will get a lot of value and really practical advice that they can put into action in their relationship or relationships in general um, moving forward. So uh, thanks, Angelica, and for everyone tuning in. You've listened to another episode of the Discover, the Hidden Potential of Your Mind podcast. I'm the guest host for today, Dave, with Angelica, and that's all for this episode. We'll talk to you next time.
1: Bye-bye.